0: Hello and welcome to our latest episode of our podcast. My name is Chris McNutt and I'm part of the Progressive Education Nonprofit Human Restoration Project. Before we get started, I want to let you know that this is brought to you by our supporters, three of whom are Paul Agarto Perez, Kane Letzia, and Corinne Greenblatt. Thank you for your ongoing support. You can learn more about the Human Restoration Project on our website, humanrestorationproject.org, or find us on social media and YouTube. On today's podcast, we're joined by two founders of Ludic Language Pedagogy, or LLP. LLP is an open-access academic journal and community focused on publishing actionable ideas on ludic, or playful ideas, and language learning through tabletop RPGs, live-action role-playing, card games, and video games. For example, two recently published papers include Teaching Spanish with The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, and Places, People, Practices, and Play Animal Crossing New Horizons here and there. Joining us are Dr. James York, the editor-in-chief of LLP, and a senior assistant professor at Meishi University, where he teaches and conducts research on the application of games in play and literacy, and Dr. Jonathan DeHaan, who is associate editor and associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at the University of Shizuoka. I did also should have added on that you're both in Japan, which is interesting uh, in and of itself. Jonathan focuses on teaching literacy with games as well. James and Jonathan are currently writing a book on ludic pedagogy, and they led a session at our recent conference to restore humanity on ludic teaching that you should definitely check out. We'll put that in the show notes. Thanks again, James and Jonathan, for joining us. Uh, and James, we're just going to start off with you and just kind of go through some of our, our key terms, as many academics do, and really just describe the difference between these concepts play ludic game-based learning gamification what is this world that we're living in when it comes to ludic learning pedagogy
1: yeah great um thank you for the introduction uh chris uh yeah i am a doctor but uh, i am a researcher but i'm also a practitioner i think that that's where a lot of my uh, research focus comes from and yeah, I am a teacher, and um, being able to interface between uh, what's happening in classrooms and what's being talked about in the world of academia, I think, is a unique position and one that I'm trying to to use to its fullest. Uh, I guess to to reach teachers and to to help researchers at the same time. Regarding these terms, I guess we can start with the term gamification, which is perhaps the most well known term among teachers, um, also the most confused term i guess um it seems to be a a word that has used as an umbrella for anything to do with games or game-like approaches to teaching you may think well gamification is that like playing monopoly in class Um, gamification is that like saying x giving students xp instead of giving them a grade is it minecraft is minecraft gamification right so I think there's a lot of confusion around the terms, um, both gamification and game-based learning. Definitely not. So I, I think that it's important to define these terms, that gamification should be different from game-based learning. It, it needs to be uh, separated in order to, to talk about these things um, properly. So gamification essentially is this idea of using the elements of games in non-game contexts, that's the kind of clinical um, definition that you'll find in in textbooks. Generally, how this has been interpreted and applied to these non-game contexts, and let's stick with education then, is that, like I mentioned, the the, the reframing of of the classroom as a game. Teachers really uh, glom onto this because it's nothing new, really. Um, the, the the classroom is already kind of gamified in the fact that. There is quantifiable outcomes. Um, You know, the the grade that you get, that's kind of a score that you get in games. Um, You have these activities, which could be considered, I guess, levels in the game. There are winners and losers in the class. So teachers go, okay, I just need to rename things in my class. And then it's kind of gamey and kids love games. So they're probably going to love this. That's basically how gamification is implemented in classrooms. It's okay. Instead of doing a reading activity for homework, I'm going to give you a reading quest just by changing the terminology makes it more glamorous and more well supposedly appealing to the students that are going to do this activity
0: and also like tagging on things that feel gamey that add to the the extrinsic motivator element i know 10 maybe 20 years ago now um there was the badging phenomenon putting badges attached to everything like the boy scouts or something where you, you get your Badge for completing three homework assignments on time, and that would give you a hundred XP to level up and put a hat on your avatar or something in the in the tech system or Class Dojo, which is used in they advertise I think ninety five percent of classrooms or schools ninety five percent of schools use Class Dojo. Yeah, it's it's definitely taken the world by storm.
1: Yeah, so this this idea of like you said um, rewards based um, gamification extrinsic motivation. Um, tapping behavioristic um, qualities of gamification um it really the problem with it then for me is that it doesn't doesn't change the underlying structure that 's already there right um, if we want to change schools and make them better quote unquote better then just by changing terminology and by focusing even more on extrinsic motivation and behaviorism it doesn't really do anything so that that 's kind of the problem that I have with this term gamification and its implications for for education. So in opposition to that, then, we have this idea of, well, what's game-based learning? Um, and game-based learning is simply just any learning that is um, facilitated through the use of a game. So where gamification is using game elements, or at least applying game elements to the, to the, um, the, the construct that's already there, game-based learning then is saying, well, we're actually going to use a game, a real a game, to achieve something so okay you could use civilization to learn about the the world uh, the 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 map of the world or something you could use uh minecraft to do a kind of group um what's the word like collaborative activity to to build trust with each other um to learn about deforestation to learn about farming um you know it's, it's this idea of using a game to learn something
0: right and this is something that i think that anyone who's grown up in the last 30 years probably played sim city or oregon trail when they were in school and everyone pretty much remembers the major life lessons i guess or historical lessons of oregon trail people know dysentery probably solely because of oregon trail and it it wasn't something that we were forced into through some kind of lesson plan it just existed in classrooms and kids played it because it was
1: fun you bring up oregon trail as an example of game-based learning is actually super important Okay, so. If you imagine a student playing Oregon Trail, and then this, sorry, this, this links to my critique of game-based learning, actually, is that if you think about students playing Oregon Trail in the classroom, you're probably going to think that the learning just comes from playing the game. It's, it's kind of a, a, a package unto itself. The learning should just naturally happen. Oh, you're going to play Oregon Trail today to learn about X, Y, Z. Now that that's the problem with with game-based learning is that it has no pedagogical ideology. It has no kind of teaching attached to it. Game-based learning in fact could be implemented in a, a behavioristic manner in that you you're, you're going to play this game to get 10 points, right? It, there's no teaching around it, there's no reflection, there's no onboarding um so I think game-based learning one of the issues with it is that okay, so I'm going to bring a game into a classroom, but how do I actually you know, pedagogically scaffold that towards learning. Um, so if we, if we just sum it up, then we've got ga- gamification, which is saying we're going to take these elements of games and apply them to the classroom as a kind of fake simulation layer on top of what already exists, not change underlying structure. There's a problem there. Uh, game-based learning, okay, we're going to use games towards um, learning something, but how the teacher actually does that really matters. So I think that that's, that's a kind of blind spot in game-based learning is that we're going to bring this tool in and we're going to expect learning to happen. And so that maybe le- leeways into what me and Jonathan and the, the, the team at LLP, Ludic Language Pedagogy here is, are trying to do in that saying that, well, the pedagogy focus, how do we actually use these things? If students are really into Among Us or uh, Stardew Valley or Apex Legends, League of Legends, how do we actually um, you know, pedagogically scaffold an activity around that game or playful activity towards, um, you know, learning that is in line with HRP's um, um, kind of proposition. It's transformative, it's humane, and it, um, you know, is the best that we can do for students. That's probably the best I can do right now. Uh, Please add to it, Jonathan and Chris. Yeah.
2: I think one of the things that James quickly said about Oregon Trail is that there, I think you said that there aren't pedagogical models baked into it. And I think we can we can split that apart just a little bit, right? Because like if, if we look at Oregon Trail, it is designed by people for people. And so the designers thought about the best way to onboard or introduce or tutorialize or to present the information in that game, right? And this is where, where Chris, yeah, no, this is where Chris and HRP is also thinking about like how do we communicate effective design principles to teachers? Because in Oregon Trail, the designers did did present things in a way and they designed the graphical interface, they designed the levels, they designed the progression to be effective, right? If they had not designed the game in an effective way, nobody would play it. it wouldn't be fun, right? And so there is a sort of systemic um, interactive model, there's 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 hints, there's tips, there's events, there's text, there's information that does teach people about the experience of the Oregon Trail. Okay. That's that right. There is that, that, that games are designed effectively. If they weren't designed effectively, no one would play them because they'd be too hard. Right. Um, I just finished a five hour video essay review of Tokimeki Memorial, this hardcore dating simulation, which broke down this entire model. Right. It's, it's, it's very difficult. It's, it's, it's impenetrable. Right. Okay. So, but, and then, but then to go back to James talking about, about Minecraft, Minecraft is designed also to onboard people there is a tutorial in minecraft but there are things in minecraft that are a little bit obtuse or obscured or ideas that are underlining what minecraft is for example i just watched a video essay on how in minecraft you can abuse the villagers in minecraft and transport them to another place to build a sort of work camp to to farm certain elements. And it's basically, you're you're engaging in colonialism, right? Where you can do things in games and not be aware that you're doing things in games or that they have meanings, right? And so, um, I mean, so for example, like Animal Crossing as well, you brought that up in the introduction, like it is a model of capitalism. It is a model of, of a mortgage system. It's a model of consumerism that perhaps the player can see that the designer did put in the game but if the learner is not aware of what colonialism is or what capitalism is it's very difficult for someone to play a game and then reflect on it and go oh right like i i shouldn't be engaged in colonialism in this amazing voxel game right no no really right and that's and i think that's that's and that's where llp starts with is like there are there are systems in games and there are ideas in games and experiences in games that learners might not be, that probably won't be able to unpack by themselves, right? Like, how does, how does sexism appear in certain online games, right? Or, or, or how do we unpack that and actually apply that to the real life? I think that's where the, James's comment about games not having learning, certain learning principles in is very apt, right? Where games, a lot of educational games are not designed to include a sort of debriefing stage and an application stage and an analysis stage, they're just focused on the experience. And games are fantastic experiences, and, and media are fantastic experiences. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of addicted to watching The Big Short right now, right? This, this about the 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 the, the housing crisis crash in two thousand eight, right? And it's just like, it's amazing, right? But but I would like to talk to a financial banker and 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 get their understanding of it and and unpack that stuff for me right like i can't unpack it by myself because i don't have that knowledge or that ability to apply those lessons in my real life right so i think games are well designed experiences but teachers are also interactive and can design additional well designed experiences ar- around them to 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 apply them in an even greater they can amplify the 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 well designed experiences to be more well-designed experiences, right?
1: That was yeah. That was the point I was trying to make, actually. So thank you for um for, for clarifying the fact that games themselves may have some pedagogical, you know, design baked into them. But yeah, the point was that your what was it? The colonialism example, for, for example, a teacher a teacher could manufacture that experience for students and then unpack it, right?
2: They could absolutely, right? Not everybody is going to, to going to like colonialize the villagers to mine emeralds, right? Like. I didn't do that. I've, I've played hundreds of hours of Minecraft. I've never, okay, my kids do abuse the villagers. I'll I'll take that back.
0: What, what I think is interesting about what you're saying is that I think it speaks to a greater conversation that we could at least tap into slightly surrounding ed tech broadly, even beyond games. For example, we recently have been talking a lot about Migo, which is the new AI companion for Khan Academy, um, which in theory is a tool that kids can go on Khan Academy, they can have a conversation with a chat GPT chatbot type thing, and it will tutor them and help them come to answers. And and honestly, AI is an incredible tool to break down code to break down math problems. It's really neat. But that doesn't mean that you just put all of 30 kids in your room on a computer to do AI chatbot stuff without any teaching intervention or purpose behind the content. In the exact same way that we wouldn't tell 30 kids play Oregon Trail, and then the bell rings, and that's, that's the end of the period. Like, there's, there's an additional layer there. And something I, I want to make sure we got to is that this doesn't just apply to video games, and, and you guys talk about this a lot. It, it's board games, it's tabletop games, it's role-playing activities, and it also dives into the conversations around the systems that the games are in, but also conversations about how you play the game itself, like strategy. Um, A a good example I have is I I used to teach the Cold War and McCarthyism. So when people were investigating uh, communism, they thought everybody was a communist spread like wildfire. Um, We used to play what was called the red dot game, a very simple game, you cut up a sheet of paper, like tear it into a bunch of pieces. Let's say there are groups of eight, the teacher will take a red dot, put it on one write red because of colorblindness. And then put black on all of the other ones. So you have seven black dots, one red dot, discreetly give it to every single kid. They look at the dot, they put it in their pocket. And the goal of the game is everyone has to vote out the red dot. And pretty much about 60 seconds into this game, chaos ensues. Because everyone will just start screaming at each other because they just assume everyone else is the red dot. And very rarely does anyone actually win. And what tends to happen is everyone isolates from each other else. They think everyone else is the red dot. So You have this group of people that kind of all span out at the end of the the activity. There's like 30 people around the room and they're all hyper suspicious. That in and of itself, the strategy of that and how you feel and how you play it emulates the literal thing that happened during McCarthyism. That's, that's exactly what people did. They sold out their neighbors. uh, They were, they were worried about someone being over their shoulder at all times, et cetera. Go ahead, Jonathan.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. Like, that's phenomenal because you, you're you're describing, and I, and I'm sure, like you're descri- you're describing a system which is really elegant, well designed. There's there's hidden information. There's there's instructional principles baked into that. But then of course you're going to debrief it, and you're going to talk about what it means and the accusations and how this feeds into psych you know psychosis and things like that. Not psychosis, but you know what I mean, like you know right. And so I think what James was just talking about, and bringing it back to the definitions, like. Yes, this is the kind of stuff that we want in the classroom like we we do want to have these elegant like the red dot game is 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 frugal, right it's it's just a piece of paper, right it's it's a it's a face to face simulation there's 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 all these hard skills and soft skills and knowledge and strategies and you can write essays about it and you can do all this kind of stuff like I think that's a really wonderful example of of ludic language pedagogy, right and there's tons of language in there as well or ludic pedagogy. What I what I think is really interesting and and, and what I, we would love to try to convey in this podcast is that what do you call what you just did? Do you call this game-based learning? Do you call it game-based teaching? Do you call it gamification? Because I think that's just like, it's just a very side box of saying, I think it's very hard for lay people, for for even researchers to label what that is. And I think that leads to the problems about gamification. Someone will say, Red dot game debrief Red dot game debriefing uh, writing essays to prepare for the Regents exam or whatever, or um, class dojo and rewarding people with a sound effect for, for, for being on task. Let's just put those in the same barrel, right? Right, and that's and that's it. That's and that's and that's the thing. Like, and that's just that that's just the nature of the academic silo of jargon of of people's literacy of going Minecraft, um, Oregon Trail um class dojo uh rewards and punishments grades levels achievements badges red dot game and debriefing they're all the same thing right and because kids love because 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 kids like games right and so that's that's i think that's the anti-ed tech anti like is, is the thing we're fighting against not fighting well fighting or or trying to deal with because it, it is a literacy
0: like it's a it's an understanding it's it's restructuring, right? It's systemic rather than a tag on because the the concept of gamification as it's typically said through school is you're a teacher, these are students, let's do things better using games. But what we're really getting at here is actually redefining what good teaching is because games like the Red Dot game, but also having your kids play video games in class is fairly radical if you are doing that for longer than 15 minutes, if you're debriefing and talking about it, if you're doing this consistently and it's not a one-off, that is going to make your classroom loud. It's going to make it hands-on. It's going to make it experiential. And that is quite literally, yeah, it's teaching as a subversive activity, you know, literally redefining what it means to have a classroom.
2: And I think that's a complicated conversation. And that's, and that's just people's like, like human attention spans, thinking about the future, being able to deal with the systems of education, that's a much more nuanced, difficult conversation to have than I can reframe my classes as quests and badges and, and achievements and, and, and XP, right? And so that, that's interesting. That's, yeah, that's the third rail, right?
1: The thing that I'd like to add here is then that we, we kind of talked dismissively about gamification um, because it doesn't really change the underlying structure of the classroom, okay? Um, of course you know grades uh, scores um, quantified feedback can be effective in knowing how well you're doing yeah of course Alfie comes rewards and punishment feedback is good of course we, we do like feedback but um, yeah gamification doesn't really change the line structure okay um, the issue that we have with game-based learning then is um, well one is is there any pedagogy there um, that the teacher's doing but that, that's
3: that's
1: the first thing the second thing that I think that we touched on is um, maybe the t- teachers listening to this, when they think of game-based learning, it's like I said, the Minecraft, the video games, and uh, the digital games. And it's, well, how the hell am I going to bring Minecraft into the classroom? How the hell am I going to get 30 devices so that students can um, experience the Oregon Trail, for example, even? And I think that's one of the the issues with this, this terminology, game-based learning, is that it has been kind of hyper-focused on the digital. Um, whereas what Chris just introduced is this Red Dot game um, that would for us definitely, I mean, it is, it is a, a game of sorts. It? Um, so it, it would come under the umbrella of game-based learning, but the way that game-based learning has kind of been sold is that the Red Dot game doesn't really fit into the, the narrative. So that's why we're using this term ludic, which comes from, um, you know, the, the, the word play, um, be, meaning that we're looking at things from the, the massively multiple online RPG games like World of Warcraft, the the Among Us games, the the Minecraft games. Okay, of course they fit under a ludic umbrella, but we'd also like to include all of this stuff that teachers are actually doing, like the the Red Dot game. How can we um, pedagogically support, uh, you know, scaffold that towards learning as well under a banner of of, of game based learning, uh, using the term ludic. So yeah, that that's the the difference in terminology that I'd like to just focus on is that game based learning because it has been you know fairly techno utopian and focused on digital. Um, it has let teachers down in a way, and so by opening the gates to uh, all kinds of play and, and games under the under the term ludic, I think is a little bit more humane and the way that we'd like to see things going.
0: James, just addressing the first part of that, and then I want to get to what it means to be ludic in physical spaces as well. That that external motivator piece, something that I've been watching very closely because I myself am I'm a, I'm a pretty avid board gamer, video gamer. I'm I'm truly a nerd. And this has been ongoing, but I feel like really recently there's been a massive pushback to external motivators in games. So there's been hyper vigilance towards is the game wasting my time? Is the game trying to move me forward using almost behaviorist methods of like shiny things on screen, etc. Or is the game fun in it of itself? Like we've seen recent releases of games that are all style, no substance. And then games like Baldur's Gate 3, which just came out, it's like one of the best-selling games of all time, won all these different awards, contains no microtransactions, is fun to play, you can play it any way that you want. And I'm curious if there's a way for us to interpret this movement that you all are doing through the lens of like exploitative uh, mobile games or exploitative like AAA games that don't value people, etc.
2: I love exploitative crappy games. I think that they are wonderful. And I think that the more of them, the better, because we can bring them into the classroom and we can use them to show students how manipulative systems and people are. And if we don't have those, then there's not a shortcut to really showing people how awful other
0: human beings are. It makes a really good case too for when you can use extrinsic motivation, because it's not like there's no role. I think that some people get stuck in the binary, right? They get stuck in this idea of, extrinsic motivator bad intrinsic motivator good but it's it's more nuanced than that
1: it's it's a it's a good framing concept like the idea of freemium versus triple a games versus indie games and how do they relate to what's happening in classrooms like the freemium games due to their nature is that they're free to download and so they want to keep you on the app the game as much as possible so that they can generate money and they do that through manipulation of you know um, timed rewards gems um you know basically they keep you on the app as much as possible okay this is kind of pessimistic but you can see that if if maybe high school or junior high school whatever uh, teaching if the content is such can i say bullshit
2: (laughs) i went to a new supermarket the other day and i and i checked out and they're like do you have a point do you do you have a point card i'm like no i don't have a point card would you like a point card i don't want a point card Right, because it's the same thing as the freemium bullshit. Right, it's the I will give you this thing to hook you back into keeping continue playing. Right, and coming back.
1: Yeah, so that's why gamification is used in schools because the content's crap. It's like I'm gonna have to use all this all these rewards to keep you on the on on the treadmill. Right. Right. Like I came to this store for the cage-free eggs. You're that's why idiot. I came to this <laughs> You're an idiot. That, what are you even not talking idiot.
2: about? No, because that's why I I I decided to go to this store for a specific purpose, and then they're trying to sell me this premium gamification
0: bullshit. I have no idea what you're talking about. But but building off of that, though, I want to be clear, too, if we're going to continue, maybe not necessarily the egg route, but the mobile gaming (laughs) route. Premium (laughs) games tend to burn out. Like, there's a few that are hyper-popular. But the ones that are hyper popular, if you notice, tend to be the least exploitative. Teamfight tactics like the League of Legends uh, game is incredibly well done. Does it have in-app purchases? Yeah, there's a ton of them, but they're not actually impacting the game. And big asterisk here because there are caveats. Most people aren't addicted to this in the sense that I'm spending thousands of dollars a month to keep playing it versus something like Diablo Immortal, which kind of infamously launched and had a giant number of people burn out of it within the first few months because the game itself is done through purchasing. It took everything out of the air and then moved on. And if we think about that from a teaching angle, that's the same as saying, hey, my class is, it's fun just because it's fun, and every now and then we have some extrinsic motivators because we have to to keep you all going. I mean, there's a little bit of that in there. But at the exact same time, Every single lesson is not, hey, you're going to earn your 100 points today because after a while, that's it's strenuous. It, it harms you. It's stress. People
2: do burn out on gamification, right? Like the point that James made in his excellent digital culture and education paper is that in if you start to implement these systems of rewards, you need to keep them going, right? And you need to keep like ramping up the dopamine hit to keep people in that system, right? And and that's the, that's the argument against capitalism, too, like capitalism, consumerism yeah, we're just going to consume all the resources, or resources on the planet and then people are going to burn out.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think um, you can also think about it in terms of passion versus profit, right? The game design, is it designed for profit or is it, is it a passion project like an indie game um, that, that doesn't try and keep you attached? It's, it, if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't, right?
2: I play a freemium game called Tricky Machines, okay? It's this crazy high, it's this janky driving simulation game. It's, it's free to download. Um, and you get rewinds because you're going to make a lot of mistakes driving these hor- like really difficult to drive trucks and forklifts and and and, and trailers around this 3D <laughs> blocky world. I'm happy to spend five bucks or ten bucks because I like the game and I'm happy to support the designers. But that I th- has, so Chris has the designer tricked me into into giving them five bucks every couple months.
0: I mean, there's a whole science behind this, like making the bundle a certain amount of money. What bundles do I display at different amounts of times? What digital currencies do I use? This is like a whole thing, but there's a major difference between a developer obsessing over, hey, I'm going to reap as much money as possible from the consumer and the purpose of the game is the extrinsic reward, aka the purpose of the game is to make as much money as possible, versus the purpose of the game is to be fun and I can sustain myself by making a fun game.
1: Yeah, it's the passion versus project profit thing again, right? So is it focused on giving the giving the experience or is it about milking the the user?
0: Yeah.
2: Well, but it's not it's not A or B. And I think this we can get into this later. Like it's not A or B. Like there the designer still has to buy cage free eggs tomorrow, right? Like they, they still have to eat, right? So they do need they can't just make an amazing free game and put it out into the world because they love everybody, right? They they do have to eat.
3: Meet Dominic, a typical kid navigating the monotony of school. Every day, he trudges through a seemingly endless cycle of uninspiring lectures, textbooks thick as bricks, and the ever-present drone of the teacher's voice. As the clock ticks, his creativity wilts within the confines of rigid curriculum and standardized tests. The fluorescent lights flicker against the beige wall, casting a sterile glow over the rows of tired faces. All daydreaming of adventure and excitement outside those confining walls. Even the most intriguing subjects lose their allure as they're squeezed into the unrelenting schedule, drained of the spark that could ignite a passion. Dominic yearns for a spark of real-world relevance, or a chance to explore his unique interests. But the system seems determined to snuff out any hint of excitement that deviates from the script. The bell rings, echoing the same familiar routine. The purpose of the Human Restoration Project is restoring humanity to education. We believe in fostering a human-centered systems approach that revitalizes and rehumanizes the educational experience for students and adults alike. Through our research-backed, informed guidance and collaborative effort with students, teachers, and administrators, we are actively shaping the narrative of public schools. We aim to build trust and foster a strong community of backers who share our vision. We believe in the power of openness, and with your contribution, you're helping us maintain this organization and continue to restore humanity to education. Here's a quick summary of our financial situation. Our income sources are donations, grant funding, and professional development. We don't generate a profit on our other endeavors like our conferences, resources, and videos. We're funded through 2024, but are currently reliant on potential grant funding to stay afloat. Our only major expense is payroll. The only two full-time employees at HRP, Nick and Chris, each make $55,000 a year. And last year, 92% of our funding was used toward expenses. That's payroll, website fees, transcription services, and more. In other words, every dollar counts. Human Restoration Project is a 501c3 public charity, and your donation will receive tax deduction benefits in the United States. Our EIN is 84-375-3948. As a bonus, all donor gifts are produced by Raygun, ethically sourced, sustainably made here in the Midwest and the largest union clothing chain in the United States. And as I can vouch, the shirts are also very, very comfortable.
0: So would one of you like to address potentially what does that actually look like, feel like, sound like? What does it mean to be ludic generally?
1: Okay, there's, there's a couple of different framing devices. First of all, we can think of our classrooms as playgrounds. This is something that we've been playing with quite a lot recently, is that if we consider classrooms as games where there are winners and losers with a quantified um, output in terms of the grade that students get, I think that we can do better than that by considering stu- uh, classrooms as playgrounds instead. And so the, the the kind of aesthetic difference here is that, well, if you consider the game Snakes and Ladders, for example, you know, you just go through the paces. There's no real choice, I guess. You just roll and see what happens
0: and your outcome. is No one's like replaying Chutes and Ladders <laughs> multiple days in a row. I don't, I don't think so. No,
1: no. And we can kind of consider that if if that's a kind of game like classroom, then what would a play classroom look like? Well, what do kids do in, a, in an adventure playground or a jungle gym or whatever you call them in the States? Um, you know, you've got the the slide, you've got this, maybe a little castle area, you've got uh, maybe a, a walkway that they can go across. So with a playground, it is a structure, it is a defined um, structure that someone has made, but they've made it to be played with in lots of different ways. So the kid could use the castle as a um, to say that oh I'm the king of the castle and you guys are all peasants or whatever, or you could have someone that just only goes down the slide fifteen times, you know, um, see how fast he can go, or maybe he slides down backwards and stuff. So the point is that I think that if we as teachers can create uh, a structure for students to play within, um, we're doing something um, that's a lot more in, in line with what HRP would 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 um, uh, consider important in 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 schools is that it's more. Um, agentive, there's more participation. Um, so the first kind of idea of being a ludic teacher is both to think of your classroom as a playground, uh, and then how can you create space for students to play? And, and this word space, um, we're actually using as an acronym for the kind of five key tenets of um, progressive, tr- transformative, um, good education. So the S would be safety. So, how can we create safety for our students to play? How can we create, for example, um, a, a classroom that um, values um, l- learning by failure and and you know n- redoing things? So it, it's a safe place where students can can um, talk about themselves and not feel like a kind of a fear of being reprimanded. Okay, so that's the first core tenant of a quote unquote ludic, uh, playful environment is to have a, a safety uh, participation. So if you look through. Um, educational material on progressive education, on playful education, on, again, good education, it should be connected to the real world. So the the participation element of the the classroom, how do we have students get involved in society? Okay, So that's the second core tenant. So SP. Next would be A. So it's agency. How can we have students, um, you know, be active learners doing things that are important to them, you know, have some autonomy, have some choice, uh, so we've got S-P-A next is C. So this is another key core tenant of, of educational uh, literature being uh, critical. So how can we create critical students that are not just um, regurgitating things verbatim from what the teacher said, but actually uh, diving into material? Who who wrote this? Why did they write it? You know, so it's a lot more. It's about literacy. The final point. So we've got S-P-A-C. E is about experiences, so valuing students' experiences in and outside the classroom, thinking about their their identity, making meaningful experiences for students. So I think that if a, if a teacher can uh, consider their um, their classroom as a place that um, provides space for students to play um, with these five core tenants, then we're on the right track to being a kind of uh, ludic teaching experience, uh, essentially.
0: Is there even a difference between ludic as a concept when it comes to learning and the concept of learning as in isn't all good play learning and all good play learning i think i said the same think twice didn't i yeah in in, in both ways right so like when you describe this concept of space what i hear is well it's progressive education i I don't really need to add on anything to that to necessarily make it progressive ed that is progressive ed I, i think when some folks think about the emotional connection to play they think of the word fun and that's not necessarily true although games can be fun games can also be very serious and rigorous and difficult and challenging and tackle like real problems i've played everything from you know i'll play some like dumb game on my phone to pass 10 minutes because i'm bored and it's like a quick dopamine hit to i'll play like albion online or some like hardcore mmo and make a spreadsheet for hours and be doing like math calculations, and I'll end after like three hours thinking to myself, "Why am I doing this?" This isn't fun. I'm like working. I'm working harder than I do on my day job playing this game, but yet I still continue to do it. The idea of
1: this space having these five core tenants—the space to play—being um, c- totally aligned with progressive education. Yes, it is. Um, it's also completely aligned with playful uh, education uh, literature as well. It's also aligned with Um, radical critical pedagogy literature it's also aligned with general good educational literature which i just mentioned so the idea that um all of these things kind of coalesce um that is why i'm able to call it a ludic approach because it does align with so many things it's not only progressive literature but it also aligns with play and play literature so yeah i think that having these just just boiling all these core tenets down um was a real kind of um revolutionary thing for for mine and jonathan's thinking on this topic of what is ludic teaching yeah there is no there's nothing
0: new it's just only truth right what's exciting about that to me is that it gives you an example right because the one of the major issues that you run into as a progressive educator is that the thing that you have to model on is either your own classroom experience which tends to not be progressive Or perhaps like looking at like subbury schools, which which, but it's it's not accessible, right? I can't easily walk into a quote unquote progressive education classroom and feel it and see it, understand what's going on. But again, pretty much everyone born in the last few decades plays video games actively or has played a game and they can understand that. Like that's a super accessible thing for most folks um, to go play a board game or video game. We, we talk about this, but like this is getting into like semiotic domains of understanding, teaching and learning through the domain of games and play and learning and just making that realization that, Oh, Hey, these are really similar, if not the same thing.
2: So um, the question that you asked a, a few minutes ago about like uh, about fun, it's, philo- it's philosophical. It's, it's, it's remarkably hard to, to d- define what, what fun is and and what play is. So in the book, and and the work that we're doing right now is to try to talk about ludic by downplaying the what of games like downplaying the technology in a way and and focusing more on 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 the who and the how and the why and so what what we've what we've come back to and this is this is this wonderful refrain of like there's nothing new only truth that we're exploring in the book is that in 2004, like like Mark LeBlanc and other people, they, they, they looked at different kinds of fun. And the things that you talked about were like, well, you could, you, you could play Pokemon or Animal Crossing or, or, or Stardew Valley as just a pastime, just to relax. It's, it's fun to just like collect things and relax with your friends. Or you can play something that's incredibly hard. Like people are playing Dark Souls or, 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 or are really like for the challenge. And underneath the, the, the umbrella of fun, There are both of these things, right? There are different types of fun that people like to have, just like there are different ways that people like to learn, right? Like we can go out and we can do inquiry learning or we can, we can draw flashcards. uh, We can, we can do all these different things. I, I think if, if teachers start to think more about why their students might like to play games and why they might like to engage with the world and who their students are and how they're going to use the games, I think the question of the what just sort of answers itself, right? Like we, we we necessarily have to look at different interactive experiences to get at those goals. It's sort of backwards design, right? It's very hard, and I, I think it's a, I think it's sort of a trap to say I love Elden Ring. That's a great that's a great game. We're going to play Eve online. We're we're going to do all this kind of stuff, and then we're going to sort of figure out what we can learn from that game. Is is the sort of trap that people I think have have fallen into, right? Like. Um, among us is great. How are we going to use it? There, it's 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 a recursive loop again, right? Like that's that's also something that we're talking about. Like the 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 the, Oramoros, that's the snake eating its tail.
1: I think from the other end of the spectrum is I've got to teach Spanish tense. What's a good game to teach ta- Spanish tenses? Right. That's another um, pitfall that people fall into. I think.
2: Though it's it's not completely bad, though. Like if if the goals are good, James. Right. Like that's the that's the thing we talk about as well. Like if the goals are interesting. Then you can start doing really interesting things, like um, let's let's say High Tech High or some or, or or Quest to Learn, right? They've got these progressive goals by going from the 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 why, then back to the how, and talking about who the students are, the what just makes sense then, right? Because you're going to be doing all these other pedagogical things around it, right? But if you said I I have to teach I I have to teach English one I have to teach Spanish one I need the students to learn. 400 verbs by the end of the semester, you're going to go to Kahoot. You're going to go to class dojo because that's the most efficient way to get people to drill the content that's been mandated by your administrator, right? If you don't have the freedom to play, you're going to, the the backwards design puts you in a
0: bad place. It forces you to embrace a more radical pedagogy though, because that's a perfect example of something that is not retained. It's short-term results. And a behaviorist mindset, because it does well on testing, but does nothing to engage the learner over time in the exact same way that I, I mean I took eight years of Spanish, but also I've attempted to use duolingo, which is a ostensibly a flashcard app right that doesn't really teach you how to to do that, but if you were to play a game that was in another language that was immersive, your chances of remembering that content beyond just flashcards is much higher
2: james James has just done that with tactics ogre, so James. Is, is a very proficient Japanese speaker, and he is now writing a paper where he played a quite hardcore tactics game in Japanese. He streamed everything. It's on his Twitch channel. And you can see him trying to unpack things. I'm still curious, like, what did you actually learn, James, from this progressive, humane, exploratory way of approaching learning Japanese rather than, than grinding another, you know, 100,000 words through Duolingo? This is the problem, too, that Chris, that I'm sure you brought up against is that they have, it's really easy to show data from a more behaviorist agricultural model of farming students rather than creating a permaculture garden where people, where people everybody can be their wonderful flower and explore the things they want to learn. Because demonstrating what, demonstrating, I'm poking you, right? Demonstrating what, what students have learned through inquiry is much more challenging, right? It's much more challenging. I have a I have actually a little pushback against that. See, I'm poking you. I because I want you to I want you to push back on this. It's
0: because it's systems of education find themselves in many other monetary capitalistic economic systems that cause us to look at learning through one specific lens, which is traditional test score academics. Now, interestingly enough, we can make the argument that progressive education actually does increase test scores. We have that data. But as as you probably both know, there was the eight-year study, like way back in the day. This is what, 70 years ago? It was the 1930s, I believe. Uh, and they looked at progressive schools and looked at things like college success rates, job academic, uh, job, job uh, success rates, academics, even like life, like health risks and stuff like that. And they found across the board that progressive schools did better than their public school peers. Now, the data is a little skewed because you have to account for the fact that progressive schools tend to be richer kids. They tend to have more access to things, et cetera, which speaks to the idea of education can't solve economic problems.
2: Right. It's just the straight, it's, it's education replicating class structures rather than, right? There is not social mobility, right? If, if people are stuck at a certain level, there's not social mobility either, right?
0: Right. But you can extrapolate the data and still find that kids who went to more affluent, typical public schools were more engaged, had more monetary success and were happier and healthier, healthier people as a result of going to progressive schools. It's just like, this has been studied time and time again. The research is all out there. It's just not nearly as clean. It's not clean.
2: It's not clean because, right? Like, because then you, then you get the conflating factors of like, well, the, the, the parents are highly educated and they're also feeding the kids better food, like farm free eggs or cage free eggs again. Right there are more books in their bedrooms they're they're participating in different extracurricular activities it, it it's 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 hard to look at that data and the social cultural factors around it right
0: i was even getting into like the pedagogy isn't necessarily as clean so speaking of like like the game element it's a lot easier to just say duolingo x into y versus play immersive game in the class and everyone's doing something different so it's like a b c d e f g h i j into x like it, it's, it's way more complicated
2: and i just wrote a paper in in ludic language pedagogy about like the methods the materials and the mediation where i had 60 students we all played the, the same game and students were sort of were exploring like well i'm going to teach with this game or i'm going to look at the language of this game or the cultural models and it's just like as a teacher i have to do different things and i've got 60 students doing different things and so i have to structure it's as a sort of portfolio based class and i have to have students Demonstrate their own learning and reflect on things. I didn't give them a vocabulary test. I don't know how many words they learned, but I can I can show twenty groups beautiful transformative journeys through this class.
1: Let's pull this slightly back, then, right? So the idea of um, well, what did you learn from tactics, Ogre James? Okay, I played a game. Did I learn anything? If I had just studied vocabulary via flashcards, I would have quote unquote learned more content in the time that it took me to play tactics ogre but the the level that i retained that information uh would probably be a lot less than the words that i learned by playing this game so it's a kind of quantity versus quality argument here right
0: really quick interjection that is mirrored in how they study progressive education in regards to tests whenever students take tests they tend to do the same or better on state state tests, etc but folks that go through progressive pedagogy get more complex answers correct. So they are worse at the rote memorization questions, like what does this word mean? But they're way better at what is the theme of this passage or something like that.
2: Interpretation, critical thinking, this, these, these, these measures. That's great.
0: So the,
1: the problem here, we're going to go pessimistic though now, unfortunately, is that the thing that... My universities, well, I've, I spoke to Chris uh, outside of this podcast about it. Uh, for example, the, the university entrance exam in Japan or maybe the SATs, something in the States, what they're looking for is that quantity over quality. So you could say that even though my my um, experience of, of learning that way was, was good for me and I learned things in a deeper way, I didn't get actually uh, as much as I could have done if I just did flashcards, which is the thing that is valued by um, universities and, and you know, higher education. So that, that, that's a huge problem I see,
0: right? You, you work in the systems that you find yourself in and you push in any way that you can on the systems that you can influence. The, the trouble that we run into is that the folks internalize the message that, yes, I should work to change the systems that I have control over. But their interpretation of what systems they have control over is heavily skewed in the sense that they could be taking much bigger risks and changing much bigger systems. They just don't know it because they haven't tried. They've limited their own potential. This hits um, directly uh, onto the idea of play and
1: what is play. There's a few definitions of play. The one that me and Jonathan are using in our book that we're writing is from Ian Bogost, which is to um, manipulate. Um, a system towards gratifying experiences Uh, so it's manipulating constraints within constraints for teachers then they need to know what their constraints are in order for them to be able to make this space to play so the more uh cognizant they are of the constraints that they find themselves within hopefully the more that they can actually Push back on those boundaries towards generating these gratifying experiences, which I think we're both talking about from a play angle and from um, a progressive education angle as well, right?
2: It is. It is really about literacy, right? It's 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 very much about literacy of understanding what your constraints are and how you can use a ludic approach to push back on those constraints and to continue to grab, you know, to 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 make or take more freedom, right? And and I loved what Chris said about like you you do what you can. It's, it's, the, it's the nature finds a way or, you know, like the water goes through the cracks sort of a, of approach of like just a really simple example. Like I, I was I, there's a there's a teacher that I was working with like a couple of years ago and there's a there was a mandated textbook in the curriculum and he had gotten through the textbook a little bit quicker. And there were a couple of weeks left in the class and he came to me and said, what do I do? And literally he he. Didn't know what to do with three weeks. He could have. Uh, for me, it's like, oh well, wow, I'll do a mini project, right? I'll have some. I'll have students go like do some mini inquiry inquiry research, or I'll have them make a podcast, or I'll have them you know, just stand up and talk about like what makes you happy. I don't know. They like, just do something nice for a couple of weeks. And and I just said, but because of his literacy, I'm just like, well, just do a couple of the chapters again. Like just do a little bit of repetitions, right? Like like ask the students which chapters they had trouble with, and just do those do those chapters again. He didn't know that he could do the textbook again, right? He had thought that he had just gone through all the content and now his job was done and he was totally lost.
0: I think what's really cool about this specific line of thinking surrounding progressive pedagogy is it does give a very tangible way to start, right? If you go on YouTube and you type in like me, like if you type in my name, okay, one of the first things that you'll find is me talking about the benefits of a badging system from like 14 years ago, because I didn't know what I was doing, right? I integrated an XP system, it was like my second year teaching. Like I did all of these really dumb things. And I went through a master's program where I was taught Giroux and Hooks and Frere. Like I learned the critical pedagogy. I did all this stuff. And it still didn't resonate,
2: and and that's and that's 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 a wonderful transition into something that I I stumbled into as well. Like I met we teach language in Japan, James and I, and and we teach a lot of conversation classes. And so you have you ask students like, so ah hi Taro, how are you today? And they, I'm fine, thank you. And you? I'm fine. What'd you do this weekend? watch a movie? Okay, have, go go sit down, right? Instead of that, I take now like a a week, like also oh, so, so oh, ninety minutes a week. I've have, I have classes ninety minutes a week. We take a, a period or two just to get to know each other. And I ask much more different questions like, who are you? What are your superpowers? What, what, what are you afraid about? What are you afraid of in this class? Like, what, what would you not like to do in this class? If, if you had three hours of time, what, what could I help you with? It's, it's what you just said. like It's very human of, are you happy and are you healthy? And who would you like to be in the future? and how can i get you there with with the limited time that we have in this class i've only i'm only going to meet you for 22 hours twenty two and a half and a half hours i can give you 10 hours of homework another constraint what can i do in the 30 hours that i'm going to be with you and by starting with that human perspective of this is who we are this is who we want to be students do remarkable things like amazing projects like my students are like redesigning um uh, the toilet systems to, to be more humane towards international people in Japan, right? Because of the language barrier. Or they are trying to revitalize areas of Japan because of its um, declining population and aging population. Like the downtown areas are just becoming wastelands. And so I have students going in and like talking to shop owners and saying, what can I do for you? I mean, I'm a student, right? I, this, this, I teach them. These are the magic words. Like I am a student. What does she say? This is just the magic word. Like people will help them if they say, I'm a student and I want to do something. They could, it's, it's just like a, a, a lightning in a bottle and people start talking to them.
1: I was going to say, how do you tie that to ludic pedagogy?
2: This idea of agency and interaction. Like I used to, t- I w- the, the way that I used to teach classes was much more teacher fronted, right? All right, oh, here's the textbooks. Open your, open your book to page 17. All right, uh, here's the dialogue that you've got to read. Okay, p- person A, person B. Uh, now switch. Let's pull some vocabulary out. Let me drill you a little bit. And so now it's much more about the, that, that. That is interaction, right? That if, from, from, a, from a very behaviorist pers- language perspective, a cognitivist perspective, that is effective teaching, right? The students are interacting with each other. They're outputting. But for me now, the in, I, I'm reframing the agency and the interaction to be much more of saying, you've got the freedom to do anything you want in this class, pretty much.
1: Yeah. Okay. So can I, can I tie this into the playground metaphor then? So the idea of, 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 of teaching as a playground, rather than a game, I'm going to presume then Jonathan, you've set up some kind of constraints for the students. You have to do a project, you will be graded on this project. You must evidence your learning on this project. That is, that is the jungle gym that you have created. And then you've given students the space there to actually play with it, how they want to on their terms.
2: But we we went through a curriculum reform process about four or five years ago. Um, I was part of the decision making team, and I said, like, we really need to have a a project-based learning curriculum to this department. Um, In Japan, not enough not enough schools have a have a PBL class. I think we I can put together a a project-based learning curriculum. Um, The dean was on board, uh, and we hired. We got a new hire to help me put together this project-based learning curriculum, okay? So this was like through the institution of, uh, there was a window for curriculum reform that you have the conversation with people, right? Hey, we're, we're gonna reform the curriculum, what should we do? And another person might've said, well, we need to have more conversation classes. We need to have more uh, flashcard learning. We need to have more test prep. I said, we need to have more inquiry learning. And I, I think I can put together a decent project-based learning curriculum. So conversations with the department, drafted syllabi which were negotiated with the dean got a new hire who was totally on board hired for this position and we continue to play around with um what is it like uh what's the seven habits of highly effective people like that's the that, that, that's in the first year course all this kind of stuff like and so we do we have a syllabus and it's rigorous right like students have to keep learning diaries um there are multiple critiques that have to be handed in Um, there are, there's transformative reflections at the end of the semester. They have to write an exit memo to the next year's class. They have to document their learning. They have to write reports in their second language, their first language, and their third language to get extra credit. Like it's this, and it just, and it just snowballs, right? I'm, 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 I'm going to spend about a, you know, an hour today revising it for next semester to add in more of this space. Now that I've, now, now that I've started this process, I can add in more things. So instead of me checking the diaries, I'm also gonna have them peer checking each other's diaries and and giving comments to other people. I'm gonna I'm gonna buddy them up, right? So that they can they can they can buddy up with different people each week to sort of peer feedback on their learning diaries. Right? So that's that's how I was able to think about my constraint, which I I could not have taught this class 10 years ago under the constraints that I had at the time. But now I'm taking more and more approaching things in a very ludic way we don't use games we don't use games in this classroom but it's incredibly ludic right like and by right i do show them examples of games like for example the fun theory like the, the piano stairs right or the or the world's deepest gar- garbage bin or or this kind of stuff
1: which would not fit just, just as a disclaimer that would not fit under a game-based learning approach the fun okay those, I, those I could sell activities. that as a
2: game-based and when i when i taught a, a graduate level class at and, and NYU. It was a, it was a games and education class, and I showed all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Like I I showed the Pac-Manhattan was that was that was the year before me, right? So people they dressed up as Pac-Man and ran around the streets of Manhattan. So right, somebody dressed up as Pac-Man. Someone was at, like four people dressed up as ghosts. There was a command center where they were on cell phones, and and because Manhattan looks like around um, Washington Square Park, it looks like the Pac-Man board. So they played Pac-Manhattan. They built and run Pac-Manhattan. And the hope. nobody got killed by a taxi. It was remarkable.
0: Pulling that back, a huge part of the work that we do at HRP, and I also find it in that space acronym you have, is this, this idea of purpose finding, going on a, a life's journey, having a purpose. And it's not necessarily that you ever even meet that purpose or know what it is. It's the fact that you are on constant track of figuring out who it is that you are, who you are on that journey. It's the classic you know, statement. It's about the journey, not about the destination. The the dream or the lofty goal of folks who think about education in a very human centered way see life as ludic, right? Work is ludic, school is ludic, the way that I interact when I wake up and I go to bed is ludic. And because if we get away from that word of fun and move towards these ideas of agency, choice, purpose, these are things I would want to be doing all the time. These are not things I reserve for the classroom. These aren't things that I reserve for the office. These are things I want to be doing 24 hours a day, every single day a week. And I can't help but think about folks you know, who, are, who, are, who are elderly, who have gone through a traumatic experience, like a near-death experience, et cetera. And they, they talk about this, this idea of like childhood wonder, childhood joy, embracing you know, who you were as a kid. I'm just curious about your thoughts on how you see ludic, even beyond ludic learning, just ludic as a concept universally.
2: Uh, <laughs> when I have the time to do that, like, for example, my thesis seminar, I see them for two years, right? We spend time yeah, talking about who they are and who they want to be. And we do, I, I do sort of, I don't poke holes in their dreams, <laughs> but I definitely push back a little bit when, they, when they, they're like, I really want to be a YouTuber, Right. And knowing what I know about games and, and about media, Quentin Smith from Sharp and Sit Down gave a, gave a talk at an elementary school about like, you know, like, oh, like, how many of you watch YouTubers? And like, yeah, all the kids raise their hand. Um, how many like YouTubers? Oh, they all raise their hand. How many of you want to be YouTubers? All raise their hand. And he's like, all right, let me break it down for you. You make, you make one video, you love it. It's great, right? You're, you're, you're on top of the world and that video gets a bunch of likes. Guess what? You got to do it again tomorrow. And then the day after that. And then the day after that. And then the day after that. And so like the reality of what seems like fun can pretty soon turn into something that's not meaningful or, or whatever. And so when, when my students say like, I want to be a YouTuber or I want to work at a hotel, we start to talk about like the design of gratifying experiences that James talked about earlier. And we we do spend some time Googling, like what are the most rewarding careers and why might they be rewarding and consistently teaching is on there even though it's not like a highly paid job because some teachers do they, they 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 get a lot of meaning right again the safety right participation with students and agency and critical like like some you know and then like the, the other jobs pop up like for example radiologist or, or a dental hygienist or a physical therapist or or something like that grief counselor because they they, they it, it does embody this sort of these ludic principles of relating to other people and a challenging job and interacting with people, right? And so even though those jobs might not be fun, they're incredibly ludic, right? Because it contains all this space in which you're human and you relate to other people. And so I do like to try to reframe students' understandings of society using this sort of ludic um, unpacking
0: model what do you think about this concept of reframing ludic learning towards the idea of ludic living Uh, quite literally expanding and broadening the term beyond like is ludic just a substitute for a good life as opposed to is ludic just reserved for a classroom or learning uh space Uh, so in an earlier
2: draft of the book we played around you know like there's life is a game right you can reframe you can right you can reframe games as like Right. There's a system of inputs and outputs and and, and and there's stratified outcomes and the actions that we take. It's, it's a machine. Right. I wrote a paper in college with, you know, like on, on diets as being games. And and we, we specifically steered away from that. Right. We didn't want to say school is a game. Life is a game, because I think whenever you start to do that, it does start to get very behavioristic. Right. Of, of inputs and, of, and quantified.
0: It already is. It already is. Right god let's not get too far into this but like if we want to start diving into like ideas of like capitalist realism or into like who's defining like who's defining the game if that if we're saying life is a game well it's not my game it could be a game but if i'm not the one that designed it who cares
2: i like to talk about like animal crossing and pokemon with my students because not because pokemon's a good game i i I don't think i like i like whatever i don't like it but i think nintendo is playing the game right we are the we are the we are the pieces that Nintendo is playing so that they make profit and continue reselling Pokemon to the next generation for the next you know however long capitalism
1: lasts. I think that yeah, if life is a game, <laughs> if life is a game, it does it does mean that there's going to be winners and losers and and scores and leaderboards, right? And and so sometimes the difference the difference between that and free play is that. Isn't it just nice to not worry about scores occasionally, and 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 just have like a more interesting experience? So I think that, that that's that's the problem with schools as they are. They are currently designed as games, right? They are um, set up for for winners and losers. Um, it's highly competitive, essentially, right? So I think that having a ludic approach to to learning and life is that just taking the focus off that slightly, and and thinking about well, what's the the best kind of experience I want to have in my classroom. Um, for example, thinking about grades, then again, um, I tell students in my presentations class that don't worry, whatever you do, you're going to pass the class. right? Don't worry about your grade. It's, I'm very open with them. It's like, I would like you to take risks and challenge yourself and do things that are you know, more in, you know, connected to society. So I, I have them go out and do field work and, and um, you know, collect some real data from real people. Um, rather than them trying to play it safe because they're worried about the score that they might get at the end of the, uh, of the year. So I think that a ludic approach to teaching and, and, and living is um, definitely something that we should be striving for. Yeah.
0: That's true more broadly as well. Like if you're talking about raising money as a corporation, it tends to be the folks who think outside the box, who don't think about making money, end up actually creating the most creative products that might in turn actually create more money. <laughs> in the exact same way, the people that don't focus on grades actually tend to get higher grades they study like grading orientation versus learning orientation people who don't focus on grades get higher grades which is deeply ironic
2: yeah okay so so i think it gets it it gets back to what james said about like uh, ludic being about the design of gratifying experiences right and that's different for everybody right what's gratifying to chris is is different than what's gratifying to james is different what's gratifying to me right and but I think you can start to have those humane conversations with students and peers about whether or not you are living a gratified, gratifyingly successful life and, and what's missing or what you might like to change. And then, and then it is a journey, right, of, of talking to students. I mean, if, if, if a teacher would walk into a class and be able to have the trust, and in one of my classes, I do start the class by saying, like, I trust you that you're going to do the work and I want you to trust me and I want you to say it out loud. Right, because if we don't have trust, this class is for nothing. Right, I don't, I, I can't trust you to go out and and take pictures of garbage cans or something. If 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 I, if I, if I don't trust you, right, because you could just get them off the internet and have, and then you just cheat your fieldwork, right. So if we do start to have that trust and talk about gratifying experiences and starting to have a ludic life, then I think that is the foundation for for better education and 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 a, and a better life. Um, I struggle with it for sure, like. Whenever I go to the cabin, I like to reflect on, like, how's my life going. And I was late to the podcast this morning because I, I rode. I have a run machine in my office, and I just needed to get some stress out. Even though I'm sick, I knew that it would be better for my body tomorrow and the day after if I if I did some cardio this morning, right? So, yeah, it's not always fun. I, I'm I have a cold, and I'm and I'm rowing <laughs> in the morning, right in the in the in the Japanese summer. Like, it's not a good time, but. Tomorrow will be better.
1: Games are good, but teachers are better. So uh, you you got to have uh, you got to have the pedagogy. It's not just about the games. Focus on what you can do as a teacher, rather than what the game can do for you.
0: Thank you again for listening to our podcast at Human Restoration Project. I hope this conversation leaves you inspired and ready to start making change. If you enjoyed listening, please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcast player. Plus, find a whole host of free resources, writings, and other podcasts all for free on our website, humanrestorationproject.org. Thank you.